So I think the first thing about why it's them and us and why it's such a battleground is because from the child's perspective, it's, you know, they've already done a day of school. You know, they've been, what, six hours at school. Maybe they've had an extra club. And I think there's a real struggle often for them to understand, why do I have to do this? I mean, I think that's the, the first question they fire back at you. But why? Why? Why are you making me do this? Children need to experience failure because if they don't, they you are shielding them from being able to be resilient, from developing grit, from being able to face life's challenges confidently when they come. Um, my guest today is the homework guru, Amari Eccleston-Brown. After starting out a career as BBC journalist, he soon found his passion in learning and helping children reach their full potential. He founded Believe in Learning as a full-time private tutor to children across the globe. He'd realised it's possible regardless of ability to make homework a positive experience. He's also the author of a new book, The Secrets to Happy Homework, Seven Hidden Laws of Success. Um, welcome to the show, Amari. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Um, I expect a lot of listeners will be um, very interested in this uh, in this episode. Uh, and I guess my, my first question is, you know, why is homework such a battle, battleground for children and parents? Why is it them and us? So I think the first thing about why it's them and us and why it's such a battleground is because from the child's perspective, it's, you know, they've already done a day of school. You know, they've been, what, six hours at school Maybe they've had an extra club. And I think there's a real struggle often for them to understand, why do I have to do this? I mean, I think that's the, the first question they fire back at you. But why? Why? Why are you making me do this? And they kind of see it's pointless, especially if they don't particularly connect it to, you know, advancing their learning or giving them anything valuable. And then for parents, I think the struggle is because I think parents feel as though they have some duty to make their child do it. So yes, I think there's the concern that parents have that they want their children to learn and make sure that they're reaching their potential. But I think a lot of the case, it's the fact that parents feel like, oh my God, the teacher set this homework and it's my job to almost be the manager. And so you end up in this kind of weird sort of work-like role where you're the manager and they're the disgruntled employee and you're trying to force them to sort of, you know, deliver the numbers that the boss you know, above you is pressing you to go, have you got it yet? Have you got it yet? And so I think there's that pressure. And then, of course, parents also somewhat see it as a reflection of themselves. So it's like, if my child isn't doing well, what does that mean about me? What does that mean about my parenting? Um, it's kind of that threat that is the sort of more emotional side, that if my child isn't behaving, behaving, then I must be doing a bad job as a parent. Interesting. And I guess to the point, maybe a silly question, what is the point of homework and I guess when my kids have asked that question you immediately sort of jump to you know future oh get a good job um go to uni all the rest of it but that's that's quite far off so you know what would you say to a, to a child who said look what is the point of of homework look, I've, I've spent the whole day learning learning my maths learning my English I'm exhausted well why do I need to do do more 
So one of the things I often suggest to parents when they ask me that question is rather than trying to come up with an idea, which mostly is going to be based on yourself as an adult, is to throw the question back to them and go, well, what do you think is the point of homework? Right now, of course, the first thing they might say is, well, there is no point. That's why we're having this conversation or this is why I'm resisting. And we're going to it's pointless. They might have that kind of, you know, emotional reaction to start with. But then you kind of persist and you go, no, but let's look at this. What is the point? And trust me, they will come up with something and possibly they will come up with something that's far more interesting. And so in that kind of discussion, you can find that for them, it might be, oh, well, you know, I really do like, you know, reading and I really like, you know, I really like reading Harry Potter, for instance. And so the point for me of doing homework could be to improve my stories. So one of the things I do when that conversation happens is trying to make homework mean something to the kid, because that's the biggest downfall, I think, when they just don't understand what the point of it is. So one of my students, we were preparing for, he was only six, and we were preparing for Westminster School in London. So super competitive, maybe around 400, 500 applicants for about 22 places. And again, this is an exam he's having to take at six. His brother's already at the school. So I was brought in to help him get ready. And of course, now he wasn't particularly resistant, but I was also conscious that, hey, I don't want there to be this air over him of like, right, I really got to perform. I don't want to you know, be worse than my brother. And you know, his parents really wanted it. And so what became the point of our sessions and I guess homework was he was super into telling stories. He really loved it. And so we looked up this wonderful story competition, which is called 500 Words, which is done by Radio 2. And it's a national competition. And basically, if you win, you get to go to Buckingham Palace, you would meet Camilla Parker Bowles, maybe Prince Charles, and you'd get uh, celebrities to like read your stories that would be on the website, all these wonderful things. And so the point of our sessions became, right, you're an amazing story writer, and I am here to basically empower you and move you forwards towards that goal that you have. So anytime we do a comprehension even, well, really we're doing comprehensions because we want to learn from other authors that have already made it. You know, they've got, they've got their book in print and people read it. Wouldn't that be amazing if you did that? So it was never about, you've got to do this. And it certainly wasn't about, you know, unless you do this, you're not going to get good grades. And if you don't get good grades, you're not going to get to a good university. If you don't get a good university, they're not going to get a good job and you won't get a good mortgage and all that sort of stuff, which to a six-year-old means nothing. And it's certainly not very motivating. Mm. Um, that's great. Um, we've talked about why why homework is such a battleground. Could we start to move on? Okay, we know it's a battleground, but but how do we start to affect change? And how do we start to, I guess in my situation, how do we stop myself from literally trying to force my child to do it and to, to in an idea well, get them to have some, I guess, intrinsic responsibility? Um yeah, particularly at an age of you know five, six, seven, eight, where actually they're more, more, more they're more um, interested in kind of coming home, chilling out, playing. Exactly, and I think it was kind of there in your question already. Kind of what I think often the problem is for many parents is that is that there's a sense of you go into it with the assumption that my job is to somehow convince them, trick them, <laughs> make them not realise that they're doing homework and somehow I, ex- I expect them to be resistant and my job is to somehow get force this upon them. And I think that dynamic is the thing that kind of goes wrong in the first place rather than going, right, I want to actually have them be responsible. I want to give them a chance to be responsible. And the easiest way to get somebody to feel responsible for something is to actually give them choice and to get, make them autonomous. 
So one of the first things I always talk about in terms of even just this classic question or central question of when do we start homework? When does homework get done? Because that's typically the source of the first battle. It's right, it's time to do homework now. Stop playing with your toys. Right, or you're home, do this first. And the kid goes, oh, mom, I just want to have a snack. Or they do their delay tactics. And with that, I say, that's your first opportunity to give them a sense of autonomy. And what you say to them is like, right, we get home at what, four o'clock? And, you know, for us, family meals are important. So we're going to have family meals at six, right? So you've got between four and six to get your homework done. And then you go, when would you like to do it in that window? Now, what you're doing there is, as a parent, it's very important that you provide structure and you provide boundaries that you can't sort of do away with that. So this isn't about just going, hey, do whatever you want. We're not, you know, this isn't some Lord of the Flies type situation we're trying to create here. It's much more about, okay, I respect you and I also expect you to be responsible. So I'm going to trust you with this. Um, but I am going to give you certain parameters because kids do need boundaries. So it's like, well, here are the parameters, four and six, but the rest of it I leave up to you. And then that really makes a difference because they kind of go, oh, okay, well, it's up to me. I've got some choice. You know, you are letting me do my thing, but I also know that there's this thing that I need to be responsible for. Interesting. Uh, I've got to, got to try that. I mean, the thought of doing that um, um, makes me shudder a little bit. And, and I guess to what extent, because you, you create those boundaries, which, is, which are great and give that flexibility. Um, but then should you just, I guess, leave them to it? Do you remind them? Um, how much, you know, what's the leeway? How much do you kind of say, look, that's up to you? Or how much do you say, okay, it's up to you then, an hour reminder, half an hour reminder. And also, what do you do ultimately if they just don't do it? Yeah, great. So if they don't do it, right? So in terms of actually, let me do the first part. So if you, the reminders part, maybe, but obviously you don't want it to become like nagging because then they get the message again that I don't actually really trust you. So have you done it yet? Have you done it yet? Right. So you want to. And so that's the bit where it's really difficult to resist because you actually still in the background really want them to do it. Right. So and then if they don't do it, then I think, again, you say, well, look, this is the this is the situation. Now, I want to give you this choice. Now, if you showed me that you can't handle this choice, I think that you're ready. Then I'm actually going to have to step in and I'm going to have to decide for you. And that idea of having something taken away is really is really powerful like once they've got the privilege they're going to want to keep on to it right so if they're not showing that they can be actually be responsible with that privilege that you've given them then you say well i'm I'm, so, I'm sorry but i'm going to have to decide for you now i'm sure you don't want that but that's what's going to happen if you can't do your homework because obviously i need you know we need to get your homework done and i think the other thing is allowing children to have natural consequences so that you as the parent always don't have to be the bad you don't have to be the bad cop so if they don't do their homework, let them experience what is the natural consequence of they go to school the next day and the teacher goes, well, why haven't you done your homework? And maybe they don't just, maybe the consequence might be they just don't get their teacher's approval, which as young kids, especially, they still do want most of the time. Or maybe they get some sort of demerit or they get a detention or something. But a couple of times of that, and they'll quickly learn, all right, I don't like this. And they'll change. Now you might still have a child who, you know, doesn't even care about that. And then you might have to weigh in because of course, even with the things I'm saying, there's no sort of one size fits all. But in my experience, I've found that do giving them the choice often makes a diff big difference in the first place. And then allowing them to experience the consequences of their choices. And obviously not doing the homework is a choice 
also then makes a big difference and gets them going, you know what, I actually want to do this. Interesting. And it, the point about the natural consequence, I think it's probably as much about the parents feeling comfortable because what you said at the start is actually to some extent um, homework is all some parents see homework as a reflection of them. So the idea of actually leaving the child to go into school to feel the consequences from the teacher, the, some parents may think, oh, the teacher thinks badly of me. So actually this probably isn't, it's more actually about the parents as it is the, as the children. Yeah, and I think that's one of the things because essentially, you know, and I have so much respect for classroom teachers, um, but the, the system of homework that we have in this country is that you know teachers set this homework and they just kind of go they go do that and often there's not necessarily even kind of coordination between the teachers so they don't across the different subjects so you don't they don't really know how much homework they're given so you know your math teacher might be giving you 20 minutes of homework but then the English teacher is giving you homework that's going to take you 40 minutes and then it's building up and there's pressure on time as family and then it's where does the quality time as a family go so I think you know as a parent Try to, I know it's difficult, but if you can avoid this idea that you need to sort of, you know, show up for the teacher and you don't want them to think badly of you and actually go understand that, no, it's your, it's your right as a parent to, um, you know, not be made, turned into sort of homeworks manager. Like it's, that's, that's their role, the teacher, right? And you might have some involvement in kind of helping the homework go by and make sure it happens. But I don't think to kind of turn it into have this feeling that, right, I've got to make it happen. Otherwise, you know, I'm going to look like a bad parent. Then as much as possible to liberate yourself of that feeling um, will make a big difference. No, good, good points. Um, and I guess following on from that, are there any other sort of key mistakes that you see parents making in relation to, to homework? Yeah. The number one rule or the number one mistake that I find parents making, um, and it's so natural, is in the way that they communicate about homework, particularly in the way that they communicate about trying to get homework done in the first place. So I talk about there being like three unhealthy types of communication. So that's there's bribing, there's bullying, and there's badgering. So I'll say a bit about each of those. So bribing is kind of obvious, right? It's where the kid's not doing the homework and you really want to get it done. You're like, oh, this is taking long enough. I really just want to get homework on the table, get dinner on the table. You know, I've got a, I've got an email that I need to get to. I just really need to get them to do it as quickly as possible. And so in that moment you say, okay, uh, look, uh, darling, if you, if you do your homework, I promise you, I'll give you an ice cream. And often it is the sort of thing where you break a rule that you've already established. I no ice cream before dinner, no sweets then, or no screen time. Yep. And then you kind of, you rein back on a rule that you've already established in order to just to get this done. Now, of course, the thing is with all these techniques, that I'm going to say all these communication styles, they are effective in the short term. I, they probably do get your child to do the homework. They go, oh, okay, great. Ice cream. Yeah, that's a worthwhile trade. But the problem is, is what it does for the long term is that actually the message that you send is one, that rule that I made about no ice cream before dinner isn't really a hard and fast rule. And actually, you know, I kind of go back on what I, I mean. And then the second thing, which probably is even worse, is that the kid learns, hey, I've got some power here. So if I stop doing my homework in the future, if I make up excuses, if I resist, if I dawdle, if I complain, I might get something out of it that I really want. So you're actually incentivizing them not doing their homework. And the same goes for bullying, actually. Because with bullying, which is basically 
giving, doling out threats or doling out punishments and saying things like, if you don't do your homework, then no screen time for, you know, for the next week or something like that. Guilty. And yeah, right. And then, I mean, let me ask you this. I mean, when you, when you say that, does your kid know beforehand, is, is that period of time set or is it just like in the moment you go a week and then the next time it's two days and the next time it's for the next hour? Yeah, no, listen, it's exactly that. It's, it's inconsistent. It's, uh, and you're doing it. I mean, the, the emotion comes from me and then it's a case of that frustration um, leads, to, leads to me saying that, yeah. <laughs> exactly. So what happens then, and probably, and maybe you've seen this with your children, is that typically what I find that happens then is that the children's, where do you think their focus goes? Because you want their focus to be on the fact that they're not doing the homework and to correct that. But their focus goes on how unfair you're being and you know they feel bullied which is why i call it bullying although that's quite a can feel like quite a sort of inflammatory phrase to use for parents right but the child feels like they're bullied and if they feel as though you're being unreasonable so their focus goes on that and it definitely doesn't go on their behavior reflecting on why they should be doing what you're saying they should do so the message that they learn is that daddy or mummy is completely unfair and especially if what you do is something that you've promised them already. Let's say they've done some good work, some good homework, and you say, all right, because you've done such a good job, you know, we're going to go for a bike ride this weekend, or I'm going to get you that thing you've been asking me. And then the next time they don't do good work and you go, right, that's it. You can forget about that bike ride or you can forget about, you know, getting that Nintendo DS game. Then what they learn is that, well, mommy and daddy's words don't mean anything because they promised this to me. And again, all they're focused on is being really indignant and they'll want to sort of, you know, dig their heels in despite you. So yes, again, you might get them to do the homework on that particular occasion because they don't want the, the threat, but it won't encourage them to reflect and become more responsible for the future, which is the real goal. And finally, badgering, which is basically being on their case, being on their back, nagging them. Again, the message there that they learn is that what's more important isn't me actually learning about this homework or learning from this homework. It's just getting it done right? All my parents really care about, they just want to see it done. They want to move on from it. So even you aren't showing them that the learning aspect of it, which you can't put a time on learning like that. It's rich and it's, it's varied and it's sometimes complex and it's organic. But when you try to sort of be efficient with it, right, just get it done. It actually sends the message that the purpose is just to do a, a box ticking exercise. And again, their motivation for it, their interest, their curiosity in it is eroded. And they all, all they care about is, you know, they just know that this is something I've got to do for mum and dad. It's important to them, not really important to me. So those are common mistakes I see all the time. Now, I often say to parents at this point, because I, I see their look of like, okay, so what's left? Because, you know, that's everything I do. <laughs> that's, that's all my tactics gone. <laughs> So I say the really important thing is, is if those are all the types of unhealthy communication, there are healthy forms of communication. And the first one starts with having rules ahead of time. And I think, I think most parents don't have rules. And I prefer to call them ground rules because putting the focus there on, they provide stability. Everybody needs to have ground under their feet. And so certain rules will provide that. And it's not just when do we start homework, and I've already given a suggestion for that, but it's also things about, well, what do we care about? You know, what standard of work do we expect? And talking about that before and having a conversation about it. So again, it's not a rule that comes down from on top, it's a conversation that you have. And I recommend having this conversation, say, 
choose a weekend where there's no homework on the horizon. You can watch a film together, maybe you get a takeout, and you actually dedicate some time to going, right, how are we going to do homework in this house so that it, it works for us instead of against us as a family? So also things like you talk about, what do we think about help? You know, so you might say, what's my job as a parent and what's your job as the student or as the child, right? Let's establish our roles. So my role as a parent is to supervise, is to help you when you actually need the help. But you also have conversations about, well, what's okay to ask for help about, right? If it's just that you don't want to look, at what point can you ask me for help? And what are some appropriate ways for you to ask me for help? Because that's one of the ways also that um, battles can happen because they're like, ah, oh, and then you get the, the situation where they get you to do it for them. Um, a parent told me something really interesting during lockdown where, of course, there was, you know, they were suddenly parents were bumped up to being basically teachers. And, you know, this parent said that her daughter at first was just constantly asking her for help and it meant that she couldn't do any of her work. And so she started to do it where she put her kid at the top of the house and she was two floors down. And she said, right, anytime you need help, you have to come to me. You have to go down the two, do- the two floors. And simply that, the kid was like, oh, it's not worth it. <laughs> and exactly. so, yeah, right. So it dropped by 10%. So teaching the child that actually children need help a lot less. But if it's immediately available, they'll take, they will take the shortcut, right? And there's, there's not, as a parent, it's not fair to sort of blame them for that because that's just natural, right? And probably would do the same if it were available. So as a parent, it's good to discuss this beforehand. And then in those moments that you're saying with your child, where you kind of go with the iPad or screen time or whatever, and it's one week and then it's five days and then it's an hour or whatever. Again, that's established beforehand. So the consequences for not doing your homework, is like we've agreed upon it. And then you can say to your child, well, we had, remember we had that Saturday where we talked about it and we agreed that if you don't do this, there's no iPad for an hour. And so that's the choice that you made and this is the consequence and I'm not and then you can avoid the emotional part of it because you don't have to feel so triggered because you know you can just fall back on well these are the ground rules brilliant uh, I've got a lot to learn clearly <laughs> um one of the things that I'd like to just a slight change in tap but still with a focus on homework um one of the things that I love about your approach is obviously you're, you're a tutor and you also do the maths, the English. But one of the things I've seen in obviously our discussions beforehand on your site is, is you focus on developing um, holistic skills, skills that can be used not just for now, um, but for life. And, and I'd love to kind of shift the conversation to that. And I think the first thing I want to start on is correcting children's homework and mistakes and failure and learning from that. Because again, going back to something you said beforehand, you know, to what extent, um, you know, you're supervising, your child's got some homework, uh, English, for example, writing a story. Have a look through it. Um, it's littered with with mistakes. On one hand, you you obviously want to, to point out the mistakes, but the other hand, actually, you know what, that's what, what he or she has done. And actually that's probably what should be um, presented to the teacher. What's the balance there that you need to take? So I find that quite, quite challenging. Because when I see something, you want to correct it. Um, yeah, it'd be good, great to get your view on that. Yeah, so I think there's kind of two aspects in terms of correcting mistakes. So one is in terms of the standard that we expect of work. And that's also something that I suggest to parents that they should talk about beforehand in part of those setting the ground rules. But what standard do we expect? And that's kind of what falls under the category of what do we care about? And so one good idea is to talk about any piece of homework has stages. So let's take, a, you know, writing a story. So there's three stages to writing a story. There's planning it, 
there's actually writing it and then there's actually checking it you know and you mentioned at the top you know i've just written a book and that's a completely the same so i wrote my book and then i did a first check but then i gave it over to an editor who was there to you know really check it for commas punctuation style and all those sorts of things and that was a that was a legitimate stage of it and i had a break in between so it's the, it's fair enough i think with your kids to establish that and go right we're going to write a story and discuss and have these stages first i want you to plan it and once you've finished that stage you have completed that so you can have a little break in between might be five minutes and then we're going to do the writing part which obviously is the most important part and after they've done that you can celebrate hey you've got the most important part done and you let them have a break but you go but to do a complete job there is the third stage, which is checking it. And then we go, you know, again, you can give them some choice and say, hey, when are we going to come back for you to finish the job and do the completion part? Because I think what can happen is, and I have this with kids all the time, they go, done. <laughs> you know, they kind of, very pleased. They put the, they've put the final four stop. In many cases, they don't. And then they go, done, because they've got to the end. And then at that point, as a parent, you're like, no, 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 you're not done. <laughs> you look at this, exactly. look at this. And the kid is like, no, no, I can't, I don't want to look at it anymore. I've done, I've done what you made, wanted me to do, right? And I think it's, I think what this technique of splitting into stages does, it allows the child to feel that sense of pleasure and completion that they have, they have completed something, they've completed the writing, but that's just not the full job. So you go, you congratulate them, you celebrate with them, and you don't sort of rankle and go, oh, but you didn't put a capital on the very first word in the whole story. You know? <laughs> and then you give them a break and then you say, but we're going to come back and do the checking part. And then that checking part, again, you leave it up to them. And you go, all right, I want you to check it. Now, what I used to do is I used to say, you know, right, you're not allowed to hand in work to me before you've checked it. I used to be much more sort of authoritarian about it. It's like, done, uh-uh, I don't know what you're saying done for because you haven't checked it. And I used to be like that. And, you know, again, sometimes it had some, it made a difference, but they never really checked it that much. And then I got into kind of going, okay, look at this. And then this, and pointing out all the mistakes and telling them and stuff like that. And it, again, that part, which I think is in your question, the worry about, about how much is it learning? And also then when they take it to the teacher, how much is it an indication to the teacher about where they're actually at? of what help they might need, mm. then that wasn't so great. So put this break in, allow them, and then in that second or that third stage, actually, where they check their work, you allow them to do it. Because it is important that the, the teacher is getting accurate feedback about where they're at. Exactly. Um, and the other th final thing about correcting mistakes is, there again, there are ways to do it. So for instance, let's say it's a spelling mistake. And let's say because there's different levels of spelling mistake. There's spelling mistakes where they've been sloppy and they do know actually how to spell the word. Especially, like, for instance, they spelt the word correctly two times in the text and the third time they just spell it wrong. You know, you see that and you go, and that really, for me as a tutor, even rankles. It's like, what are you doing? <laughs> you know how to spell it. Why can't you just, you know, be consistent? And so with that sort of case, you might just point something out and go, uh, look at this word here. What do you think might be wrong with it? And you say that you don't correct it. Or for instance, if it's something that you know that they've spelt correctly, maybe in the past, and it's somewhere in their memory, but they just they haven't recalled it. Often what I do is I'll write out three versions of the word. So let's say it's a word like beautiful, which is kind of one of those keywords that is tricky to spell when you're sort of younger. Then I might spell it, you know, B-O-O to full, you know, and then I'll spell it three different ways. And I'll get them to look at it. And I'll go, which one looks correct? And invariably, they'll pick the right one because it is there in their memory. And that act 
where they actually do what we call retrieval is part of learning. But simply saying that's wrong, this is how you spot beautiful, they don't really learn anything, mm-hmm. but making their brain do that grunt work to actually recall it from their brain, even if it's recognizing it, is part of the learning. So, you know, there's various things that you can do in terms of correcting, but the main thing you want to avoid is just um, doing it for them and going, right, do that T, put that there, put that there. And especially if it's because, again, that reflection part where you're worried about them handing in bad work because you don't want the teacher to think that your your child is doing badly and therefore, as by reflection, you're not doing well as a parent or you're being sloppy because how could you let your child hand in homework that looks like this? Yeah. Um, so again, there's a lot of emotional management as a parent that comes into homework that's really got nothing to do with the kid. It's about imagine, managing your own emotions, Absolutely. which of course is difficult. Definitely. Um, another, <clears throat> excuse me, failure and embracing mm. failure. Um, and that's something that you, you know, you speak, speak a lot of. How do you, from a viewpoint of, of homework, um, start to, I guess, manage that into the process? Because, you know, what you, you know, the world we know is the place where everyone will experience failure at some point. And I think the earlier we, we embrace that, the better. How do we set up situations, healthy situations for, for children to experience that and to learn from it? Yeah, I think the first thing is failure is so important. So in writing the book, I spoke to I spoke to educators, I spoke to psychologists, I spoke to mindfulness experts, a real breadth of people. And everybody without exception had something to say about failure. And I can sort of boil down their message into sort of one phrase, which is that children need to experience failure because if they don't, they you are shielding them from being able to be resilient, from developing grit, from being able to face life's challenges confidently when they come. And yet the the impulse is to shield children from failure. And the way that shows up in homework is to sort of, again, with correcting, because you don't want them to get that red mark from the teacher. You don't want them to get, you know, four, when maybe if you help them, they could get a six out of 10, for instance. But it is important to allow them to experience that failure. And I think in this area, it's another one of those things where actually it's not so much about them learning it. I think children do a lot more unlearning about how to deal with failure through the way that we might sort of parent them. Um, so what I mean by that is because childhood, early childhood, is constantly a feeling of failure. They try to sit up, they fall down. They try to walk, they fall down. Mm. And in that circumstance, right, you know, the learning process as a, as a young child, learning and failure are just two sides of the same coin. You know, they're one of the same thing. I try and speak, I get it wrong. I'm not understood. And then I learn from that, right? Or I say, I don't know, I say, um, you know, I took in something, you know, and then you correct them and they kind of go. And there's no, there's no charge around that. That mini failure, there's nothing like, oh my God, this is really bad. How are you going to feel if I say, actually, it's, I took, you know, or, you know, like that. So, but at some point when formal education starts, actually the unlearning of how to deal with failure and just be okay with it starts because then it's like, oh my God, and they're actually being graded and everything like that. So I think the first thing is to actually realize that it's just to keep failure being a natural part of learning, a natural part of life. And I say to parents that one thing is, it's useful to have a conversation with your child about failure. You might see that I'm quite... I'm very keen on parents being quite deliberate in addressing certain things. So deliberate in establishing ground rules, deliberate in talking about failure. 
And one very easy way to do it, because it doesn't have to be a heavy conversation, is to talk about, well, what things have they failed in in the past that they're now good at? So it might be, I used to not be able to ride a bike, and now I can. And you talk to them about, well, what was the journey that got you from not being able to ride a bike and falling off each time to discovering balance and feeling very confident now? Or I used to not be able to, you know, I always used to not be able to write my my Bs. I always wrote them the wrong way around as a D or whatever, which is quite a common thing. You know, what? how did you overcome that, you know? And then finally, if you notice that your child really has started to internalize negative feelings about failure to the point where they're actually nervous about failing and they say things to you like, but, you know, is it good enough? Or, you know, you can see that they're very cautious about, you know, trying out new things because, you know, they're afraid of messing up. Then what I often do is I um, share stories with them of other famous failures. And there's actually a book called Heroic Failures, which I love, which has loads of stories of, you know, famous people messing up in the most fun and bright and colourful ways. And it's really fun to just read that with them. And it's nice as a kind of, as a balance almost to some of the other stories where it's just, you know, heroic people doing fantastic things, you know, all the Greek myths and things like that. Um, And then the other thing though is to actually get it in their lives and say, hey, failure is, and allow them to finish that. And what they might say is failure is, you know, or making mistakes is actually how I do it. Making mistakes is really bad. Making mistakes is embarrassing. Making mistakes is um, not allowed. You know, making mistakes makes me silly or stupid. These are some of the things that my students say when I do this exercise with them. And then we can work out and go, okay, well, what about making mistakes is normal? Making mistakes is allowed. Making mistakes is part of learning. Making mistakes is how I know that I'm actually stretching myself. You know, all these sorts of things. And then what we typically do is we get them to make a poster. So, you know, we get them to make a poster about it and they choose their favorite phrase and they go, making mistakes is, and they make it colorful and then they can put that up on their wall so they can remind themselves. And then they have, and the lovely thing is that they have this experience, this positive experience of success in talking about failure, which is this really nice thing. They've made this successful poster, which is really nice where they've been talking about failure. Um, So, First thing then is to allow them to experience failure, but then allow them to also embrace it as a word and get understand you know um, what failure is, and then make it part of the family conversation. So one of the things I write about in the book, which I love, there's this uh, CEO from America. She runs this company. Her name's Sarah Blake. She runs a company called Spanx, and she credits a lot of her success with as a child, her dad made her and her sister come to the dinner table and always share about some way that they've messed up that week. And if they didn't come, it was actually like they had to come up with something. So sometimes they'd be scratching the barrel kind of going or scraping the barrel kind of going, oh God, what is it? And now she's instituted that in her company, which is, you know, multi-million dollar company. And with her team, she has something called Oops Meetings, where they play out Britney Spears, Oops, I did it again. (laughs) And they actually share about mistakes that they've made. Um, And the whole point is it's to stop them being risk averse, because obviously when you're scared of failure, you become risk averse and to allow them to, embrace failure and see it as part of the process of, in this case, doing business. So actually I've just started, just this weekend, I was creating my own whoops playlist 
and like putting songs. Britney Spears is on there. Brilliant. Janet Jackson has a song called Whoops. There's actually lots of songs. <laughs> Doris Day has a song called Whoops. It's great. And so they're all on my playlist now. And it's just a really fun way, rather than it being this heavy thing, of like, oh my God, we've got to talk about failure, this taboo. It's like, hey, let's talk about failure. What ways have you messed up? And as a parent, you could say, you know, just really silly things. Oh my God, you know, when I burnt, when I burnt dinner last night, <laughs> oh my God, you know, and just make it, just make it kind of more neutral or even fun. Brilliant. That's great. And I think one of the things I'm hearing there is as a parent, you've got to model that. So you've got to kind of, yeah. you've got to lead by, by example. Um, so as a counterpoint to that, we talked about mistakes, but what about, I guess, praise and, and how we, how we praise? Because I know you've got quite a few strong, well, strong views about how we do that to get a positive result. Yeah, exactly. So this is so significant because it's so easy and natural and kind of default to praise in the sense of saying, oh, wow, you're so wonderful. Oh, you're such a good boy. Um, you're such a good writer. You're so good at maths. And saying these really basically absolute statements about them as or about our children as a person, as opposed to as opposed to about their effort. So the basic rule is that I talk about three Ps. And basically what you want to praise is you want to praise process, you want to praise progress, and you want to praise persistence. And what you want to avoid praising is performance. So I explain each of those things. So praise performance is, like I said, it looks like saying, oh, you did such a good job. Uh, you praised, oh, sorry, you, you're such a good maths mathematician. You're such, so good at maths. Because really what that does is it doesn't give them anything very specific about their performance that they did well or that they can prove on. So what you do is you praise process. So you, I really like the way that you, um, that you, you know, those math, I saw that those math sums were really difficult for you, but I really like the way that you showed you're working there and you worked out, or the first time you tried it, it didn't work out, but then you thought about it and then you found a new method. That was really great the way you did that, right? So it's much more specific and it's descriptive. And then you praise progress. So you praise the fact that they are making the effort and they're improving. Yeah, rather than it being that they've got to the end goal, which these, again, absolute statements make it sound like, it's that you praise the progress. Oh, this is really great that you're, oh, with your stories, it's really great that you're starting to use more adjectives. I've really noticed that you're using like lots more like ambitious vocabulary. Or I really noticed that you started to put your capitals in many more of your words. So it's the progress. And then you praise persistence. And that was kind of like in my first example, it's like, Oh, that was really difficult. And there was, I saw there was a moment where you really wanted to give up, didn't you? Or you really wanted, you've started getting really distracted and bored, but you brought your attention back. That was really good. So if you were to look in on my classes, you'd see that I, I do that constantly. And I still have to catch myself because there's still moments when I just go, oh, that's such a great job. Oh, you're so brilliant <laughs> or something like that. But really, and I'll tell you why it's important to not do that because that actually can go well with, or not go well, it can then lead to um, problems around fearing failure or becoming risk averse. And so Carol Dweck, who is the psychologist who basically first introduced the idea of growth mindset to us in sort of in the world, talks about learned helplessness. So when you praise performance and you say things like, you're such a good boy, or you're such a good student, or quite simply, you're such a clever boy, that's the common one. Then what the child learns is, that becomes then their, what we call their self-concept. They see themselves as a clever boy. Now, if that's kind of rigid, I am a clever boy, when they then do encounter something difficult, 
they want to resist it because that threatens this idea of themselves that they're clever. And then they don't want to do it. Whereas, and she's done, Carol Dweck I'm talking about, has done experiments where they've given kids these like near impossible uh, puzzles to do, right? And so there's no expectation that they'll be able to get them right, but the kids didn't know that. And so some of the kids, they praised for like performance. Oh, you're so good, everything. And some of them, they praised, oh, it's really great that you're trying at this. And then they gave those two groups. So one that got all the praise for performance, one that got the praise for effort. And they gave them a, a, a puzzle that was actually much easier, definitely, they were able to do. The kids who have been praised for effort gave up much sooner. Well, right. Sorry, the kids that have been praised for performance gave up much sooner. Those that have been praised for effort persisted and tried at it much more. Because again, they had this sense of, okay, well, what is valuable here is the effort that I put in. Um, and so, and again, on the flip side is if you only praise performance, then again, it, it becomes, failure becomes a threat to their ego, becomes a threat to who they are because that's all bound up. Whereas there's me and then there's the performance that I give. And if my performance is subpar, which it might be, then I can do something about it because, hey, I've got the process. I could maybe improve my process. Hey, I've got progress. Hey, I'm still progressing. Maybe next time I'll do better. And I've got my effort. Hey, I can always control how much effort I put in. I might not be able to control the outcome, but I can control how much effort I put in. So it's much more within their control. And have you got any, just an aside, do you have any examples of where you've seen this play out perhaps you know when I mean you you've went to I think you went to Oxford University um, where where the assumption is everyone's pretty uh, to use the word smart I mean if you, have you seen any examples real life kind of later on in life where actually you'll see or you'll be able to tell people that have been been praised for for performance versus being praised for for the process and progress and persistence totally I mean in my own life and particularly in terms of going to Oxford and the other students. So I remember being one of the star kids and your viewers, your listeners would see that, but I did inverted commas in the air around that. So being one of the star kids at English um, at school, I remember this really weird experience where as, as a, at school, I used to be, I was the kid that was always late, you know, like 10 minutes, 15 minutes late. And we had, used to have English the first lesson on like a Thursday. And we had this teacher called Mr. Mr. Beanie. And one time I was about 10 minutes, 15 minutes late to his lesson. And I walked in and it was really quiet and it was very weird. And he said, oh, great, Amari, you're here. We can start the lesson. And I remember thinking, what? That's really weird. And I wasn't sort of, I didn't feel like this pride. It's like, oh my God, you know, I'm this important person. He couldn't start before me. But and I was, was that's such a weird thing, not only to say, but to be doing. Mm. And so obviously that is a really extreme case of like kind of, you know, really weird type of praise and, you know, filling, possibly filling the person's head with this idea of that they're brilliant. Now, even though I sort of dismissed it and thought it was weird, you know, when I did then get to Oxford, it was a challenge for me because I was used to, as many of my friends were, used to being the top dog, used to being the big fish in the pond. And then you go to Oxford where basically, if you think of all these streams, they all converge in this one place and all the big fish have found their way to this, you know, really big pond and they're all swimming around there and, you know, vying for, for position. And so a lot of people whose identity was basically bound up with being the intelligent person, being the top student, suddenly found that, hey, maybe they weren't. Um, 
you know, and actually there's this guy that I love who's written a book called The Happiness Advantage, which influenced my book a lot. And he was a psychologist professor at, at Harvard. And he would say to his students, you know, 99% of you won't be in the 1%. <laughs> and they used to hate it because it's like, oh my God, because <laughs> they're used to being that top 1%. But if you think about it, 99% of you aren't going to be in the top 1% once you get here. And so it's about learning to value something else. So yeah, I've definitely had personal experience of really struggling. I remember after my uh, my first year when I did my final exams, well, not my final exams, but I did the end of year exams after my first year and I didn't get a first. And I was just like, it just was, I could, it didn't compute. <laughs> it was really <laughs> weird. Like, what? Like, what do you mean? Like I, you know, I didn't, it didn't, didn't make any sense to me. And I really struggled for a while. So I had to learn a way to sort of adapt and um, and learn to appreciate other aspects of my personality. So that's been a journey. Um, it's definitely been a journey. And I think, you know, you mentioned that for me, teaching life skills and being holistic is so important. And part of the reason that that's so important is because I think this should be a core part of education and that children need to learn these things from a young age because they're so difficult to unlearn once you're older. Once the habit's formed, the process of trying to unlearn these things and detangle these things is so difficult and sometimes so painstaking that if we can teach kids this from when they are six and seven and make that an integral part of, of their learning and no less important, if not more important than their arithmetic or their punctuation or their grammar, then I think this is really about giving them the skills for life and you know, the skills to thrive like now and not just in the future. When we talk about home, when we talk about learning, you hear a lot about rote learning. And I know one of the mm. things on your website you talk about is, is creative thinking. I mean, how do you um, bring that to the table in your tutoring? Because I think that's really important um, just in terms of not just for the subjects, but for life in terms of how we think, how we think the critical thinking as well. So, so what's your approach to that? Yeah, so I think of creative thinking as um, being far broader than just kind of coming up with like new or even sort of wacky ideas. Creative thinking really is a, a process of thinking about problems, you know, creatively, originally, but also analytically and, and in depth and appraising them. So I think this is such an important skill for children to learn, especially in this day and age where, you know, we're seeing sort of job obsolescence, redundancy through technology and things like that. So this is such an important 21st century skill. And rote learning to me is really the enemy of that because it's teaching children just to regurgitate facts, which is exactly what we program computers to do and are getting better and better. So one of the ways that I try and encourage children to be creative is again, it's asking them questions. It's provo or provoking or promoting that spirit of inquiry. So it might look like, let's say, a lot of the time it might look like we're doing a doing some writing. And the kid might say to me something like, um, uh, what does this word mean? And I'll say, I don't know. How would we find out? Right? And then teaching them what resources they have. So it's like, well, I guess you could look on the internet. And so then often, and this is great when I'm doing a lot of online teaching, and I go, I tell you what, you look it up and I'll look it up and then let's compare what we find. So invariably they find, maybe they might find the entry in the Oxford English Dictionary and I found it in the Merriam-Webster's. And then we compare it and we go, well, which word kind of, which definition fits best here? And then we talk about it. 
And so again, they're kind of engaged in it and they're learning again to be also self-reliant and actually kind of think. And, you know, that's one of the ways, but also there's like creative exercises. So one of the very, very classic creative exercises is called the paperclip test, which is essentially a version of alternate uses, alternative uses. So you get a simple paperclip and you say, how many ways can you think of to use or how many uses can you think of for this paperclip in one minute? And then it's, again, getting them doing like lateral thinking, because obviously the obvious thing is, is to fasten paper, but then you might start to think about, well, what happens if I actually unpick that paper clip? I could use it to pick a lock or I could use it to scratch my arm if I've got a mosquito bite. I can, you know, whatever. I, even now you can see I'm sort of freewheeling and free association. So obviously you can do kind of more kind of formal exercises like that. But in terms of the normal course of homework, it's really just about getting them to ask questions. Um, I play a game called What's Outside the Box, which is uh, which is a game show that I have, and I get children to to think uh, creatively about their creative writing because it's remarkable how many of the kids basically write their characters have blonde hair and blue eyes, even when they don't themselves, right? So I'm not even just talking about kids from different ethnic backgrounds. I'm talking about, say, even white children who have majority have brown hair and maybe green or brown eyes. Interesting. It's just this sort of stereotype. And and I asked them, like, how many kids do you know that actually have blonde hair and blue eyes? And they're like, mm, I guess a couple, a few. And what eyes do you have? And so I get them to play this game and I say things like to them, we go through and we go, what color is the sky? What color is the moon? What color is the sand? And they go through and invariably they give the, the sky is blue, the moon is white, the sand is yellow. And then... I let them do all these answers and then we look and then I show them pictures of the sky at sunset. I show them pictures of the sky, the northern lights where the sky is green and blue and yellow and all these different sorts of colours. And I say, that is also the truth. So how about you put that in your story? Maybe you could set your story in Iceland, right? In the middle of the northern lights and why is your character there? Maybe, and then I show them a picture of the harvest moon, which is this, like, this big red blood orange in the sky where I show them the pictures of the black sand beaches in Tbilisi in Georgia, the, you know, the volcanic. And I'm actually here in Tenerife right now. We have black sand beaches here too. So um, I get them to kind of think outside the box and just be a bit more original and kind of allow them to explore and we look up pictures and things like that. So that's another way that I kind of promote the, promote thinking creatively. Brilliant. That, that's fantastic. Um, look, we're coming to the to the end of the session. This is, I, I could talk for for another hour. Um, what I like to do at the, um, at the end of the podcast is to, I guess, summarise. And you've given loads of tips here. Um, but if you were to summarise sort of three key tips, pieces of advice to our listeners in terms of homework and really engaging your their children, what would they be? Yeah, so I think if I were to give yeah three key tips, kind of three takeaways for parents. The first thing with regard to homework is that homework should work for you. You shouldn't work for it. So what that means is make sure that in terms of arranging homework in your home, think about well, what would work for you and talk about establish some ground rules beforehand. Think about, well, how do we want to do homework? When do we want to start? What other things are important to us? And start there, like, is it important for us to have family time? Is it important for us to do learning together? How important is it for us that you um, actually um, struggle with things and work it out versus have my help? So make all these rules together, but also have a discussion about it and do them beforehand. So that's a key takeaway. 
The other takeaway is give your child choice. Give your child autonomy and avoid the negative communication styles of avoid the bribing, avoid the bullying, avoid the badgering, and instead try and work on communicating before. And the final piece, I think, is, yeah, this bit about the holistic piece. It's about developing your child's growth mindset. And I know that you've done previous podcasts on that. You know, it's talking to them in a positive way about failure and allowing them to understand that it's just a natural part of life and giving them opportunities to experience that failure. I think those three things are so key to having not only happy homework, but also having, you know, happy, well-rounded, confident, resilient children. Brilliant. Uh, look, Amari, thank you so much for your time. Um, for any, any parents listening out there who, who want to know more about you, um, how can they find you? Yeah, so my website is www.believeinlearning.com. And so you can find out all about, you know, my, my bio and what I do and the different things that I do in terms of tutoring and coaching and mentoring. And then if you want to catch up with me on social media, so on Instagram, it's at Believe in Learning and Twitter, it's the same, at Believe in Learning. So yeah, I've got uh, my first book coming out. It's called The Secret to Happy Homework, Seven Hidden Laws of Success. And really, I wrote the book as a way to help parents have happy homework. And it kind of, at the point of writing, it kind of felt a bit radical to put the word happy and homework together. Because, you know, maybe parents hope that maybe at best it can be sort of tolerable. But, you know, through this book, I really do mean that homework can be happy and that it can be enjoyable, it can be rich, and it can be rewarding, and it can be meaningful. And basically, my goal is to have two goals. One, to end the homework battles for parents and to allow them to connect again with their children through homework instead of in spite of it. And so this book, I've spoken to um, educationalists, I've spoken to teachers, I've spoken to lots of parents, lots of my students, and really kind of come together with basically seven simple tips. I call them laws, but really they're kind of strategies to help your child um, learn how to not only do their homework, but to really be kind of full and well-rounded children. So we touch well-being, we touch on dealing with exam pressure and exam anxiety, we touch on failure, but we also talk about how to develop intrinsic motivation. I talk about how to also then help your child take it beyond the classroom and actually even connect to a sense of purpose. So I have examples of students who are doing community projects with their learning and learning about acts of kindness and actually really feeling that their learning means something to them now, not just sort of in the future, but the way that they can make a difference in their own lives and their families' lives, and even maybe in the lives of, you know, the people around them. Brilliant. Thank you so much, Amari.